All right, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there this morning, okay? So I'm going to jump into this. But I want to jump into it. But, uh, excuse me. Before I jump into it, I want to share something with you, okay? I, I just want to tell you something. I'm that guy and I'm that pastor that will use whatever it takes to snag somebody's attention to help them lower the wall inside so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can get inside, okay? I've got people that come to this church. There are people that are staff of this church because they came in on a, a Sunday morning during the summer and our worship leader was doing um, a song because we were doing a series called Psalm Songs. And she was singing me and Bobby McGee. If you know what that, that's not a worship song, okay? I just want you to know that. But it set the stage so perfectly for the message and the purpose of doing those things and connecting those songs. Um, you know, we've just done so many songs that had truth in them that we could connect to a psalm so that from now on when people hear those songs, they think about the psalms and God. We have reclaimed things for God. We have taken away the money, if you would, of the Gentiles and brought it into the throne room of grace. And I'm the guy that will do that. Now listen, I'm not going to sin I won't go that far. I'll use a video clip. I'll use all kinds of things um, to do that. Just know that I will stretch you just a little tiny bit because my whole goal is you to put this wall down and say, hmm, how's he going to make that make spiritual sense? Maybe I should just stick around for a second. But I will do whatever it takes. I just want you to know that from the get-go. Some of you are in here like, oh, Father in heaven, what is about to happen to us this morning? <laughs> Nothing. But if you heard my assistant pastor say Fortnite, that's why. I just want you to know I've never played Fortnite. Really don't know. I just don't want them using anything other than projectile apparatuses. And I want them flinging darts at people. And we're going to avoid certain words in here. And we're going to do that. But just know our goal is to have fun. Our goal is to capture people's attention. Because that's what it means for us to bring people in to sow the gospel into it. Okay. We are in the gospel. Excuse me, the gospel. We are in the book of Romans. We are in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we are going to unpack some things here. Okay. There is a lot of scripture we've got to go through. Um, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that right now so we buckle up okay here we go you ready we're in let's begin in Matthew pastor Joe I thought we're in the book of Romans we are but let's start in the book of Matthew and that'll give us about four hours to get to, to Romans and then I'll have you um, um, ready to, to hear what Paul had to say no I want to talk, start in the book of uh, Matthew because uh, Jesus is talking with some chief priests and people um, elders of the people some religious folks and Jesus is doing something and he ends up telling a parable that is exactly what's going on in Romans 10 11 and 12 and I want to do that because I need you to know and I want to show you that Jesus, excuse me, that Paul preaches Jesus. Jesus does not preach Paul. Does that make sense to you? The Holy Spirit moved Paul to expound on Jesus the Christ. 
Um, Jesus the Christ is not expounding on Paul. So if Paul's writings, if you're reading Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, um, if you're reading Hebrews, if you're reading some of those books and you're like, wow, that, Jesus said this, you go back to what Jesus said to understand what was written in the epistles. That's the way it works, okay? And so we're going to look at something that Jesus said. Let me just line it up. Jesus is interacting with chief priests and elders of the people, the religious folks that want what Jesus has. You know what Jesus had? He didn't have money. He did not have a temple. He did not have a title. He did not have flowing robes and big fancy hats, okay, like they did. What he had was the esteem and the attention of the children of Israel. They wanted to see him. They wanted to listen to him. They wanted to sit at his feet. They wanted to be a part of his movement. And as far as the rest of them were concerned, they were like, whatever, you've been pushing us out of the temple for years. And so these people wanted what Jesus had and they were not very happy. So we're going to be, we're gonna be in the 21st chapter of the book of Matthew. If you're wondering where I'm going to start, I'm going to start at the 21st chapter of the book of Matthew because Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time pre-resurrection. And so he's in uh, Jerusalem, and he spends the whole week teaching in the temple area. As he is teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people come up to him, and they begin to question him. They want to they talk to him, and they want to push his button, and they want to find out what's going on, and they are sick and tired of Jesus um, taking um, the people's attentions away from them. And so they ask him two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And that can only mean the miracles that Jesus has been doing. The healing of people, uh, giving them back their legs, giving back their ability to hear, giving them back their ability to see. Jesus has been doing some awful, terrible things in the name of God in heaven. He's been healing people. And they want to know by what authority, in whose name. And he's going to say, in the name of the kingdom of heaven. In the name of the kingdom of heaven that has come down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. The, 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 um, um, the kingdom of heaven is crashed into the earth. And then they ask a question, who gave you this authority? In whose authority are you doing it? And who gave you the right to do it? And so they pose this to Jesus in front of all of the people that Jesus is teaching that morning. He shows up, he's doing Sunday school with them, and he's teaching, and he's doing incredible things, and they step up and they say, in what authority are you doing it? We want to know who gave, you know, what organization. And then they say, and by the way, who said you could? There stands Jesus needing to answer a couple of questions. And in typical Jesus fashion, he says, I also will answer, ask you a question before I answer yours. If you tell me the answer to my question, then I'll answer your question. So here's my question. John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or was his baptism from earth? Was his baptism uh, an act of God or was his baptism just merely an act of the flesh and he wanted attention so he set himself up as, a, you know, as an evangelist? Where did it come from, heaven or man? And of course, they talked about it for just a little tiny bit. They couldn't answer him. Actually, they wouldn't answer him, or they would end up on the losing end of this thing every single time. And, and so they weren't going to. Um, and so they, they kind of said, hey, we're not going to answer your question. We're really sorry about that. Um, and Jesus said, neither will I answer you. And then he said, so let me tell you a couple of stories. And it's that story that I want to talk about today. At the end of this day, I want to talk about the fact, do you have a living faith or do you have a dead faith? Because Paul, in the book of Romans, as he writes to the church in Rome, asks them these questions. Remember, he's never met these people. He wants to meet these people. He's never been to Rome. 
but he wants to talk to them about what Christianity really is on the outside chance that they didn't get the real message. So he says, let me tell you this parable. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower, and then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruits. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third, and then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants uh, treated them all the same. Last of all, he sent his son. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the wine press, or the vineyard, excuse me, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, they're listening to this story with rapt attention. And they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other people, tenants, who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. And then here's Jesus. You, uh, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our sight. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. He who um, falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but the one on whom it falls, he will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that Jesus was in fact a prophet. And so we've got this story right here and it's going on and, and, and this whole thing um, is, is going to be very crucial to Paul's argument in the book of Romans. When he begins to say, here's the deal, and he lays the whole thing out, because really what you're looking here in this parable is actually the whole story of humanity as God begins to interact with the Israelite people. Now, they weren't Israelites at first. At first, they were nothing more. They were nothing more than a man named Abraham and his wife and his nephew Lot and the things that he had collected. That's all it was. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm raising you up out of this pagan family that you're a part of. Come follow me. That's what he said to him. That's the promise that he made for him. It's going to get teaching now because it all starts with Abraham for you and I. It says... Abraham received it by a promise. It was a covenant where there was no law. So Paul begins to show us that our salvation, because of the example of Abraham, was by grace through faith. And that was the agreement that Abraham, when God said to him, come and follow me and I will make you a great nation. I will give you a land, a country of your own. And listen to me, this is the important part because it gets lost in thousands of years. And I will make you a blessing to all nations. You see that? When God picked a people for himself, the purpose of picking the people, this sounds like Peter Piper now, doesn't it? The purpose of picking the people was for the blessing of the whole world. God wanted to bless the whole world. He did not want to just bless the Jewish people. Through Abraham and the promise that God made with Abraham, he wanted to bless the whole world. And it needed to be by grace through faith because we can't do it by works. And yet the struggle is we, we tried to do that. All Abraham had to do was come and follow me. And it, it just had to kind of move through time and it would have been a good thing. 
But in the course of events, God ends up doing things differently. Um, from Abraham, he makes a promise. Abraham grows a nation. And then they, get, uh, they walk away from God. So he sucks them down into Egypt. They're down there for uh, 472 plus years. Um, they go down there, a small family. They come out a great nation. They go down there, 70, 72 people. They come out 1.5 million people. 470 years later, he takes them through the wilderness. They see the promised land. We're talking about a a piece of property that's 150 miles this way and 75 miles that way. And all it was supposed to be was their land to, to begin to share the blessing out into the world. I'm not making political statements. I'm just telling you how the scripture unfolds. And Paul is about to share this with the Romans. So if we look at this parable for just a minute and we consider it to be the history of God's relationship to Israel, look at what Jesus is saying to these people that now want to kill him. The vineyard that that is planted there is the promised land. Because God told these people, I will take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. I will give it to you. Uh, you, will, you will inherit vineyards that you never planted. You will inherit houses that you never built. You, would, you will inherit cities that you had nothing to do with bringing together. I'm just going to give it to you. That's what God told Israel. Um, that's what he promised to them. And that's what was going to take place. So they understood when Jesus says, hey, he plants a vineyard, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about this land that is going to produce a fruit that will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And then he says, and I put a tower in it. And that tower is Jerusalem specifically. That's the cornerstone, the center of this vineyard. We can look out over the vineyard. We can see the enemies. We can see the little foxes. We can see the little birds eating the grapes off it. We can see it all, okay? And then he said, and there's going to be first fruits, and I want my first fruits. And, and, and what are first fruits? What is it that God wants? He wants 10% of the grapes. He wants 10% of all the fruit that is produced in Israel. He says, I want that. I want 10% of your worship. I want 10% of your tithes, okay? Now, this isn't about money, but let's just talk about that for a split second. Do you know what the word tithe means? It literally means one-tenth. Doesn't mean 10% per se. We just know that that's 10%. It means one-tenth. God wants one-tenth. If I sell a painting, God says, Joe, I want a tenth of that, please. I gave you the ability. Now, like, like Pastor Janice or Pastor Jeff will say when they're up here doing the, the, you know, the offering thing. Okay, God doesn't need our money. God doesn't want our money. God wants our trust. God is saying, isn't saying, give me my 10%. God is saying, and this is my choice, you can keep 90%. That's what he's saying. I choose to look positive. Live on 90%. Pay the rent, pay the tax, whatever you want to call it. Give me the adoration that is due me. And he doesn't, I mean, he actually means 10%. You know, um, somebody once said, um, I, was, I was listening to something, Stephen Furtick interacted with a man that owns a Fortune 500 company. And this man literally came to Stephen Furtick and he sat down with Stephen Furtick and he said to Stephen Furtick, dude, do you know how much money I make? And Stephen Furtick said, no. And he said, for me to give you 10% of what I make is absolutely ridiculous. First of all, he said, you're not giving it to me. You're giving it to God. You're not giving it based upon things going your way. You're giving it because you're coming and saying, God, I'm giving this to you. That's what we're doing. And this man said, well, I, I can't do that. That's, it, that is way, way too much money. And I love Stephen Furtick's answer. He said, you know what? Let's just pray. You and I, 
Let's pray right now. If, if that seems like a hardship to you to honor God the way he asked you to, let's pray that God destroys your life and let's pray that he destroys your business so that he can get your income down to a number that you feel comfortable being, being obedient about. The man changed his mind. You don't think God would actually do something like that? You may not know God. And he's not doing it because he hates you and he's mad at you. He's going to bring you into a place of trusting him, even if he has to yank the floor out from underneath of you. He's going to show you that he is God that you can trust. You can't trust him to do what you want. You can't trust him to be what you want. You can trust him to be God and be true to his word. And when he says, I want my worship, bring the worship. When he says, I want my tithe, bring the tithe. When he says, I want you to raise your children in a godly manner, bring your children up in a godly manner. When he says, I want you to stand against the culture and love your enemy, then stand against the culture and love your enemy. Because that's the fruit that God God wants from you and I because he did plant a vineyard and he did um, rent it out to you and I and he invites us into the family of God and he says hey I just want you to be a, an integral part of the mission and he invites us into that so there's the first fruits and then there's the tenants he gives it to the Jewish leaders who are supposed to be priests to the world and instead they circled everybody up and said it's us four and no more it's our God, not your God. And it's like, wow, it started getting a little hmm, hinky because he told Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your offspring. And yet here's the offspring saying, hey, no, 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 no. And so don't take my word for it. Read your Bible. Seriously. And so these tenants said no. And then these tenants decided that religion was more important than a relationship with God. And as they began to do this, it began to get ugly. And people started getting abused. People started getting ripped off. The, the, the worship was just awful. And so God says, okay, that's not working. So he sent prophets and stuff. They stoned them. They killed them. They threw them outside of Jerusalem. And then he says, I'm going to send my son Jesus. And here's Jesus saying, I'm telling you right now, guys, in a couple of days, they're going to kill me. I just want you to know that they're going to kill me. And you are the ones that are going to do that. And then finally, when he says, hey, what do you think this guy does? He says, they'll give it, or, or the, the, the owner will give it to other tenants. You and I are the other tenants. You and I are. The Gentiles, the Romans. We're the other tenants that God said, fine. If you Jewish people want to make a religion out of it, stay right there. I still love you. I still am leading you, for, uh, leading you forward. My promises are still true to you. But in the meantime, you rejected sending that out. So fine, I'll just take it out. I'm going to send my son down there. And he's going to go out and he's going to tell everybody about this. And then I'm going to send my disciples and they're actually going to go out. And if you want to study church history, then you'll understand in the book of Acts, they said, no, we're not going to go out. And they huddled up because they said, the Romans are going to come get us. And so suddenly God said, fine, you don't want to go out to the ends of the earth like Jesus said to do before he ascended. Persecution struck those people, that 120 people, and they went out. They ran like rats on a ship. And suddenly the kingdom of God started going out like it was supposed to to begin with. When God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then suddenly there's this stone, and this stone is the gospel truth of Jesus Christ himself, that all are sinners in need of a Savior. And if we repent, um, we are broken and saved. But if we are stubborn, we are crushed and killed and sent to hell. 
The cornerstone is Christ. The cornerstone will be the corner that tells you about the building. The capstone, the word used by this, is like if you make an arch, that capstone is right there, and you can lean the whole arch against it. When it settles down, it's stronger than you can imagine. But it's that capstone that holds it up. And the Scripture, Jesus said that the Jews rejected me as a capstone, but I'm telling you right now, I am the capstone. I will be lifted up, and I will be that right there that holds it all together. And so that's what's going on. And so we accept the truth, and as Gentiles, we can learn, we can gain stuff from this, but we can enter into the kingdom of God. So what do we learn real quick? What do we learn as Gentiles? We learn that God has a plan that you and I are invited in to be a part of it. And listen, I'm stringing you along till we get to this uh, Romans, and I'm not going to keep you here all day, I promise. Okay, that's why I'm talking so fast, all right? We learn as Gentiles that you and I can understand God has a plan that you and I are invited to be a part of it. A lot of you have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ when you came to God and accepted him as your Lord and Savior instead of surrendering to him. See, you, you got saved and you told God what your plan was. You got saved and you said, God, now you got to fix my marriage. Now you got to give me a better job. Now you got to give me money. Now you got to straighten my kids. Now, now you got to do this. Now you got to do this. God saved you and he said, come, follow me. That was all. But we've done the exact opposite. We've said to God, come, follow me. You raised me up from the dead. I must be awesome. Come, follow me. And we live our lives practically as Christian people meaning we live out our, our supposed surrender to Christ by saying, God, you need to do this for me, and you need to do that for me, and you need to do that for me. But we don't wake up in the morning and say, Father, what do you want me to do today? Lord, who in this room do you want me to go over and pray to? Lord, do you want me to date that person? God, do you want... See, we don't do that, and, and, and we've forgotten that it's God's plan. It's always God's plan. He's inviting us into the kingdom. We didn't invite him into our lives. The second thing we learn real quick is as followers of Jesus, he called every one of us to bear fruit. We've kind of got this idea in America anyway that as the church comes in, we get staff members, we got a pastor, we got a senior pastor, we got an executive pastor, we got a worship leader, we've got a children's minister, we've got a director of this, we've got a director of that. Those are the people that are supposed to be leading people to the Lord on our behalf. That's not the truth. You're one of the tenants. God expects you to bear fruit. Specifically, God expects you to go tell somebody about the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he expects your life to, to, to be an example of the integrity of what's coming out of your mouth. That's what God wants. Not perfection. He's not expecting perfection from you, but he's not expecting you to excuse yourself because he's not expecting perfection. Be ye therefore perfect as the Lord your God is perfect means understanding yourself as heart, soul, mind, and strength. Understand that you are eternal living in a temporal body, okay? But in the meantime, are you walking toward Christ? Are you making excuses why it's okay to live a lifestyle of sin rather than understand that God's got something so much for you, but he expects you to bring people to Jesus. He expects you to share your story. He expects you to, to testify about him because he does incredible things in your life in order that you might testify. I love what David said when he was going up to the temple. And he said, how can I keep my mouth shut about what God has done for me? I will not. And I'm telling you right now, if, if, if you're struggling and you're not feeling the favor of God, when was the last time you shared with somebody what God had done in your life favorably? Because I believe this, this is a foundational belief of mine. If you don't testify to the goodness of God in your life, he's not going to keep giving you goodness. 
I'm not saying he's going to do awful things to you. I'm saying he does incredible things in your life because he wants the testimony so that other people will know that they can trust him and will come to him. It's not just because he's a narcissist. He wants his children to come, and if we keep our mouth shut, why should he do more for us? You and I are called to invite people. The third thing that we can learn from this particular passage as Gentiles is if we've refused to be obedient, what will stop him from removing the blessing from us? He did it once. He took the blessing from the Israelites and said, here, then I'm going to give it to these Gentiles, and they're going to go preach Jesus to the world. And it's why we do what we do here in this building. It's why what we, do, we do what we do in this county. We want to, to let other people know that God loves them. And so we see that the other tenants included the Romans, and there these passages just got connected to the Roman passage that I want to share with you. We went from Matthew to Paul saying, let me tell you what Jesus said, to saying, let me make it applicable to you here in Rome right now. In Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 8, is what I want to talk about today. But what does it say? The word is near you. What does it say? What does the gospel say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth, and it is in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as we go through this, I want to talk to you about a live faith and a dead faith because it's talking about being saved. And, and, and this scripture is very, very clear. As we wrestle with this thing right here, as he, as he preaches and writes to the church in Rome, which is mostly made up of Jews but also has some um, um, Romans in it, Jews that have migrated or maybe been dispersed. Um, and so there's Gentiles and Jews worshiping together. And he's saying, hey, what benefit is there of being a Jew? None. Well, except that Jesus comes from us and these are my countrymen, okay? But he says it's no longer the law of God that brings us into a right relationship. It's the example and the promise of Abraham that I began this whole talk with. He starts with Abraham. Come, follow me. If you'll believe that I'll be your God and you'll trust me and you'll keep walking my way with me, I'm going to make you not only a great nation, but I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. Are you a blessing to the whole world? When you go to work tomorrow, are you going to be a blessing to the people that you work with? Do they say, yeah, Joe's coming in today. This is great. Or are they like, oh, great. We thought the coronavirus might hit him. No, no I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> you know, Lord, I'm not wishing a curse on anybody. I'm just saying, do you live your life in such a way that you exemplify Christ that you are Abraham's blessing? You are supposed to be. As Abraham is a blessing to you, then you are a blessing to the next people, and that is how Abraham is a blessing to the world. And what I want to know is, are you a blessing to the people that you work with? I know they frustrate you. I know there's people there that don't like you. Listen, some of you don't like me when, when Jesus is in me, and that's okay. Okay, I get it. You know, that's, that would be me. You know, I, I know you're out there. Last service, somebody said, amen. It's like, okay, you are not in this church anymore. No, um, I, I'm just saying, are you a blessing? Okay, let's make it a little more personal. Are you a blessing when you go home today? The scripture says that Jesus left his throne in heaven 
and came down to love the church. And therefore, men should leave their high and exalted position and come down here and serve their families. God didn't say Jesus left heaven and came down here and bossed us around, started shoving everybody around saying, you better serve me. You better do what I say. I'm the man. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He got off his throne, got off his high horse for some of you, and he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. Now tell me that you're supposed to boss your family around one more time, and I'll show you that you're not following Jesus. Lead your home? Absolutely. Lead your home. Boss them around and control them? Absolutely not. That's not what the Scripture says. It's the evidence of not walking with Christ or understanding a gospel of ministry. And that's what Jesus was doing. See, for us, we come to God by grace through faith. And, and listen to me, faith is a belief that dictates our actions, okay? It dictates our actions. Anything other than this, James says, is no faith at all. Look at this warning that Paul gives to the church in Rome in chapter 11. If your faith does not produce action, if you claiming Jesus as your Lord and Savior does not produce fruit, look what he says um, to the believers. He's talking to saved people. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness of those who fell, that's the Jewish people, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. You see that? Otherwise, you also will be cut off. He's talking about saved people who go to church and say they're saved, but there's no change made. And he's saying right there, I'm not, I didn't write this. He says... Be careful that if you're not going to continue in the teachings of Jesus Christ, be careful you're going to get cut off and thrown into the pile. That's what it says right there. And if they do not persist in unbelief, he's talking about the ones that were cut off, they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. So the people that believed in God that chose not to believe in God, he said he cut those off, wild olives, threw them across. You being a wild olive came to understand the truth, you got grafted in. And he said, you be careful, Roman Gentiles who love Jesus and are singing Kumbaya, because if you're not going to produce fruit, even though you got baptized, don't think that he will not cut you off because he didn't spare the original branch. He's not going to spare you. Do not get arrogant. Nothing in all of creation will separate you from the love of God. But in all of those lists, the only thing that's never mentioned is your free will. It's your free will that you've got to wrestle with. It's your free will that the Scripture says conform to the likeness. Study to show yourself approved. Work out your own salvation, not earn your salvation. Once you're saved, it should transform you. If it's not, if you go back home and you're still cussing and swearing, if you go back home and you're still sleeping around, if you go back home and you're still stealing, Please, you can't. It doesn't matter whether I know it or not. I'm telling you, the scripture says if the wild branch does not conform to the groomed um, trunk, the root, it's not going to bear fruit. And if it doesn't bear fruit, it's going to be cut off. Now, I didn't say that. I just put it up on the screen in front of you. Paul said it. 
And he's quoting Jesus. If the tenants didn't bear fruit and give God their share, he killed them and sent them out to hell. And then he rented it to other tenants. And then what did God say? Uh, What did Jesus say? What do you think God will do? He'll rent it to other tenants who will give him their share or his share. See, there's there's a call there for you and I to be very, very careful. It goes on to say, after all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that was wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? If the Jewish people that reject Jesus, that brought salvation to you and I, come to the Lord in salvation, they will be grafted back in. But it will be through, uh, by grace through faith. But it has to be a faith that creates Uh, a change. Our salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, straight up, but it's evidenced through our actions. It has to be evidenced through our actions. Um, James says it this way. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if somebody claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? I thought faith wasn't supposed to save us. He's saying, is there going to be evidence that you're saved? He's just simplifying it for you. If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So we recognize that it is not academic understanding that Jesus is the Christ. It has to be the academic um, understanding coupled with a transformation that has you doing the doing. If you see somebody hungry, feed them. It was Jesus that said, listen, get away from me because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was um, naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you did not come visit me. And those Jewish people will say, well, hold on a second. When did we see you hungry or when did we see you naked or when did we see you in prison? And he will say, when you didn't do it to the least of these. You didn't do it to me. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, you will come to me and you'll say, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, get away from me. I'll never, I never knew you. And they'll say, wait a minute. Didn't we preach in your name? That's prophesy. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And surely I will say unto them, get away from me. That's what Jesus said. I will say to them, get away from me. They didn't do it for Jesus. They did it for organized religion. They did it for titles. They did it for popularity. They did it because they wanted to be loved, but they didn't do it for the kingdom of God and he challenges them on it and so it's like a wake-up call for us it's like whoa are we living in a live faith or are we living in a dead faith a dead faith is a knowledge based on an understanding that asks nothing of the individual neither does it express itself through actions the enemy has dead faith I'm going to back up to James 2, 8. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham? See how I did that? I started with Abraham. I to Romans, and now I'm back at Abraham. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his own son Isaac on the altar? He was obedient. You see that his faith and his actions worked together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
If I'm still going to live this life cussing, swearing, using people, spitting people out, chewing people up, I'm not saying there's not times to come up against um, wrong uh, and lies and, and, and uh, stuff that's not true. But there is a manner in which we are called to do it. And he's saying we come to God by faith that is exposed by our actions. Do your actions express that you Jesus. Is that what your, your, your actions express? Think about that for a second. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. They're coupled together. Faith and action. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's dead. Dead faith. Knowledge, no action. Knowledge, no transformation. Knowledge, no articulation. You believe that there's one God, James said? This is James, a brother of Jesus, not James, a brother of John. He said, you think that knowing that there's a God and that his name is Jesus will save you? The enemy, the demons believe that and they tremble. You see, because the demons aren't going to do what Jesus said, but they know who Jesus is, but they're not going to heaven. Well, of course not, Pastor Joe, they're demons. No, no, no. So many people say, if you believe, all you have to do is believe, yes. A belief it needs to be a belief. Lord, I'm staying here. Can you fix this battery, please? Not you guys in the booth. I'm talking to Jesus. They believe and they're not going to heaven. The difference is our belief creates a transformation. I don't have to point my finger at the church and say, well, if God is good, why does he let bad things happen? I lead the church and I say, guys, there's children in Madison County that need shoes, that need clothes, and you rise up and you make it happen. That's the church I want to lead. There's children in Madison County that need beds, and you rise up and you make it happen. That's the church that I want to lead. I just don't want you to stop and say, that's what I need to do. Go the step further. There's people, adults in Madison County that need to hear what Jesus is doing in your life. And it's our, our, our place to tell them. Dead faith is what happens when religion becomes education, entertainment, or duty. Did you come to church because you wanted to be near Jesus? Or because, oh, i got to go to church. Living faith. This would be an understanding that dictates actions and lifestyles. Living faith is what happens when true religion leads to the obedience of transformation in and through and of relationships. When what you believe changes the way you act for the better, you begin to see God alive in your life. You begin to garner the blessing and the favor of God because you're moving in the direction that he needs you to move for the salvation of the next person next to you. When you come away from sin, remember, you're pushing back against the darkness and proclaiming that the, the light is right. And that's our proclamation. The light is right. And the light wins. Is your faith a faith that propels you into ministry, into missions, 
into serving, into loving, into giving? Or is your faith just a knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God? But God's never going to see any fruit from you because you won't say it out loud outside these walls. There's somebody that needs you to pray for them. There's somebody that needs you to love them. There's somebody that needs you to tell them the truth and not just assuage their sin. But tell them you're telling them the truth because you do care as a matter of fact. There is a bus coming and it is called the end of the world. My wife and I have conversations and it is quite often that I will say, I'm 59 years old. I've only got about 15 years left. What am I going to do with them? The average person lives about, what, 80, 81 years, something like that. I've barely got 20 years. In 20 years and one day, if I die at 80, 80 years is going to seem like that much time. Is it it going to benefit me that my faith is dead? Or that I worried about who I got to, to, to run around with or how much money I had or how big my house was? Or is it going to matter more that my faith was alive? Do you need hope this morning? Do you need a living faith this morning? Do you need God to wake up your faith? Do you need God to raise your faith from the dead? Do you want God to do something incredible through you? It's time for you to say, yes, Lord. It starts right here. Have you never had the opportunity to say, you know what? Crazy as it sounds, I'm starting to believe this stuff. I think it's time for me to get up in faith and come forward and say, Lord, it's not all black and white and laid out and for me. But I believe what I'm seeing. I believe what I'm hearing and I believe you want to do something in my life. And I want to give it to you. That's your morning. That's today. That's right here, right now. That's why these people are here. And I want to invite you, if your heart is just racing and wrestling with you, we're done messing with the kingdom of hell. Get out. Now, chase after that thing inside of you. Let the Holy Spirit have his way. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for this message. We thank you for tearing down walls. We thank you for pushing back the dark. We thank you for opening up our eyes to the light. We just ask and pray, God, that you descend upon us, Holy Spirit, in the lives of all of these people and start with me. God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for the times that I keep my mouth shut. Forgive me for the times that I don't preach strong or love strong. Whatever it is that, that hinders your kingdom from, being used by, uh, from using me. And now we're here. And I pray for these people. Forgive them, Lord. Wash them over. Restore us. Because we are our people in desperate need of you. And we know you're not mad. You love us. And so release us upon them in Jesus' name.